Why is it that as soon as they get elected, politicians seem to stop caring about the things the rest of us care about? Our kids, our families, the support that so many of us need to get by. Well, they're running for office, they sure can pretend. Mark Shriver, the head of the Save the Children Action Network, calls it the bobblehead syndrome, referring to the way they nod their heads up and down, pretending to agree, giving lip service, but not putting their money where their mouth is. I'm Billy Shore, and this episode of Add Passion and Stir gets to the heart of why we don't invest in kids the way we should, at a time when all of us are trying to figure out how to make sure that politics does more than manipulate policy and relationships to make the wealthy special interests even more wealthy and more powerful. This episode says we better choose sides. Mark Shriver says politics is a combat sport. Whose team are you on? I'm Billy Shore, and I'm here with two of Washington, D.C.'s most dynamic leaders. Mark Shriver is president of Save the Children Action Network, was a member of the House of Delegates in Maryland from 1994 to 2002. Do I have that right? That sounds Close. good. Yep. Close. Good. Uh, and the author of a beautiful book about his father, Sergeant Shriver, who was one of my all-time personal heroes. You can't get higher than Sergeant Shriver, um, called A Good Man. And Jeff Tracy, universally known as Chef Jeff, has several iconic restaurants in the Washington area, as the author of a book called Baby Love, which teaches busy parents how to feed healthy, easy, delicious meals for your baby and toddler. Thanks for having us. Great to be here. Now, when I got the two of you together for this, and you know, in these conversations, we always have somebody from the food world and somebody from kind of the social justice world. Uh, as I was thinking about the two of you who I don't think have met before, um, I was thinking, okay, like, what do these guys have in common? Maybe not a whole lot. What are we going to talk about? Um, then, Jeff, I read that um, you were a, a graduate of theology program at very, Georgetown University, yep. uh, sitting next to the guy who's writing a book on Pope Francis. <laughs> so I thought that wasn't bad. I think you've each got three kids. Um, Correct. And you're each, interestingly, kind of in political families in your own ways. Your wife, Nora O'Donnell, Jeff at CBS, uh, political and White House correspondent, um, and you, Mark Shriver, with a whole uh, history of family politics, including your own service in the legislature. One of the common themes I've think that you share and that certainly we talk a lot about here as children and how we invest in them or fail to invest in them and what needs to be done. And Jeff, I know that you've been involved in the community in lots of different ways. As many restaurateurs are asked to do, you're kind of a pillar of the community. You probably get asked to do more things than you could possibly do, but true, uh, somehow <laughs> you, manage, you seem to manage to do. We do as many as we can. Most of them. Absolutely. Um, but one of the things I'd like to hear from each of you is just kind of how you got to where you are today, starting with uh, you know a, a graduate or an undergraduate degree, I guess, in theology or graduate. Um, to the restaurant business and being involved in the community in so many different ways. And then I'd love to hear the same from Mark. Sure. I mean, you know, I graduated from Georgetown University in 1995, and, and I did major in theology. Um, uh, but when I was graduating, um, God.com wasn't hiring. And uh, <laughs> it was sort of before the Internet boom uh, when I graduated. And I, and, you know, the only job I'd ever liked as a teenager was working in a restaurant. So I got back into the restaurant business, and, and um, I'd started as a busboy back when I was 17. Um, just was really excited by the sort of energy in, in, the, in the business. In what town? Uh, the first job I ever had was in Hartford, Connecticut, at a restaurant called Max on Main. Uh, then went to Georgetown, uh, worked in a student-run grocery store while I was there. Came out, took my Georgetown degree, and got a job for $8 an hour working at the old Ebbett Grill downtown. I just slowly sort of built it. I ended up going to culinary school at the Culinary Institute of America in Hyde Park, New York. Graduated in two years and uh, first in my class. 
came back and when I was 26 years old, I quit working for other people and I started looking for a restaurant. It took me about six months to find one. And for some reason, I just, I mean, I, I didn't understand how difficult uh, what I was doing, you know, in retrospect, I probably would have been, <laughs> I, I mean, I wouldn't have had the guts to do it, but ignorance was bliss. Uh, at that point, I jumped right in, signed a lease, and I started my first restaurant 15 and a half years ago. And Mark, yes. you're all of a sudden writing a book on Pope Francis after a lot of different work in the community. How did that come about? Where did you start and how did you end up doing this? Well, I, uh, I was asked to write it after the book I wrote on my dad that you mentioned very kindly, Billy. Um, you know, it's I think they were looking for somebody who didn't, who wasn't a priest, who wasn't part of the Catholic uh, church structure, and that is clearly me. I don't have a degree in theology I went to the best Jesuit school in the country, which is Holy Cross, which is oh, a little bit oh, better oh. than Georgetown. <laughs> We're really a we Jesuit school. We play in basketball school. this year. We play in basketball. We might be able to beat you this year, uh, although I think it's a down decade for Holy Cross basketball. Um, so, you know, it, it was a, it's a great adventure to try to figure out uh, who Pope Francis, uh, Jorge Mario Bergoglio is and, you know, some of the, uh, what he lived through. So it was a great adventure learning from him, being inspired by him. Uh, re, you know, re-energizing my commitment to social justice because here's a guy that's lived it his entire life. Uh, it's a great, uh, it's a great story. You became a writer though by writing the book um, "A Good Man" about your father. Is that where your writing began, or had you? Yeah, I mean, before? I'm not a writer. Uh, I, I, I tell stories that are about seven or eight pages per chapter, so they're very easy to read. I hope. Uh, but I'm not a professional biographer. I'm not a professional writer. I, you know, worked coming out of college in Baltimore City with juvenile delinquent kids, went into the state legislature, did that for, you know, eight years, and then have been at Save the Children for the last 12 years. Uh, so I'm not uh, a great writer and, by any and, stretch. Well, you're a pretty good writer, though. Um, and I think in one of the points you make in A Good Man is that being good is more important than being great. So you you are a good well, I writer. I might check that box because I'm not great. Uh, tell us though about how you decided to write that book. I mean, it must have you must have felt compelled to the, write the book about of my dad. dad. Yeah. Well, essentially, you know, when my my father had died 18 months. Excuse me. My my mom had died 18 months before my dad, and um, a guy who was very close with our family, who was like a second dad to me, died two weeks after my mom, and. During the course of my father's funeral, uh, the wake and then the funeral, people kept coming up and saying he was a good man. And at first I thought that was something people said uh, that was nice to somebody who had just lost both of their parents. But I realized through the repetition of it that they meant something different. And I think in Washington there are a lot of so-called great people, people that are you know great on television, great uh, doing interviews, powerful businessmen and women. But when the spotlight's off them, they're not necessarily uh, good people. And I think my father had the unique ability to treat people the same, whether they were the president or a senator or a cardinal or the waitress at his favorite restaurant, uh, which was Reeves down on uh, G Street or the hot shops on Wisconsin Avenue when we were growing up as a kid, on, uh, you know, right inside of Bethesda. He, and, and those were the type of people that actually came to his, uh, his wake, the waitress at Reeves. The guy who works at the U.S. Air Counter at National Airport told me, each of them told me he was a good man. So, you know, after he died, I was like, what am I supposed to do now? My brother said, why don't you just start writing some of the stories down and how, what impression he gave you uh, as the life he led. So that's, that's what I did. I just wrote stories about what I learned from him, and it got woven into a book. And I think that's the same type of book I've been trying to write about Pope Francis, which are just stories that try to tell 
who the man is rather than a historical biography talking about you know, trends in historical events. It's more about a human interaction and what you can learn from human beings that have led good, good lives. One of the most widely quoted um, passages I saw being circulated uh, and that I participated in circulating after the Paris attacks was your father saying, peace is like war. If enough people want it, enough people can cause it. And I found that so many people found hope and inspiration in that passage, which I'm sure was true of many things your father said. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read one more, and then I'm going to ask Jeff to comment on, on it, because I think it gets to the core of what we want to talk about today. Sergeant Shriver also said, we all want security from the threat of violence. We all want our children to have a better future and to be able to live up to their potential. To accomplish this, we have to create the environment in which our children are born healthy, stay healthy, become educated, and know with certainty that there is a meaningful way for them to participate in our increasingly global economy. So, Jeff, you've written about children, or at least you wrote a guide for parents in terms of how to do exactly what Sergeant Shriver was talking about, which is kind of create, in the most basic way, a healthy start for children. Tell us about uh, Baby Love. Yeah, the book was the book was foundational, you know, in terms of in terms of setting the foundation for children uh, and healthy eating for a lifetime, right at the beginning. I mean, six months to eighteen months is is really the uh, range for the book, and it's the first solid food that uh, you know um, children eat, uh, and it was important. We had just had I had three kids in thirteen months, all with the same woman, which is a pretty impressive feat, and I had all these kids running around, you know, crawling around my house and. I was producing, I, I was making the food. I was producing the food as if I was a professional chef. Um, you know, I wasn't making like little batches. I was doing big batches. I was controlling the whole thing. And, um, you know, I'd make a two, three week supply in, in, in one cooking session. And my wife just thought it was the greatest thing in the entire world. And, I, and she's like, we got to write a book. And I was like, no one is going to buy a book from a chef about, you know, purees. And she's like, I know it. My wife basically forced me to write the book, and and uh, we wrote it, and it did make the New York Times bestseller list for one week, which is really cool. I have that framed, uh, that New York Times. It's been actually very nice to hear from a lot of parents, and people write to me all the time. They say, you know, the kids, you know, this is what they ate when they were six months old, seven months old, and you know, they they sh- they send me pictures, and that makes you feel good. It makes you feel like you've made some sort of difference in something. Mark, for many years, you ran Save the Children's American programs and then recently created the Save the Children's uh, Action Network. And tell us a little bit about that. It's got a more political purpose. It's a a 501c4. Um, It's talking about uh, some of the things that uh, Jeff's talking about, which is, you know, how do you get politically active? Uh, So many politicians tell you the kids are the most important resource in the world. They do this, what I call the bobblehead syndrome. You know, they bob their head up and down. Uh, and then when push comes to shove in their back room and they're in the back room making deals on budget, kids don't get the investments that they deserve. Um, so what we wanted to do is to hold politicians accountable, that if they said they were going to invest in early childhood education, if they said they were going to invest internationally to save babies' lives and mothers' lives, we want to hold them accountable. And we want to encourage them to to make those good decisions. So we want to educate people, their constituents, but we also want to put some money in the in the electoral process uh, to put a little, frankly, to put a little pressure on them to do the right thing. 
Well, I was going to ask you, why does that, and maybe you're getting at it, why does that bobblehead syndrome exist? What's behind because that? Because every politician, I mean, I had a great conversation with a governor, a former governor of a southern state who told me that he was mayor of a major city in that state. He was governor for eight years. And he said, you know, if somebody gives me $1,000, it's a nice contribution. Someone actually spends a couple hundred thousand dollars in my race, I know they exist. And I just know that there is never going to be any dollars invested by people who care about kids. And it happened, you know, all the state senators and state reps that come into my office, they all say kids are the most important thing. But when the deals get cut, kids are never at the top of the priority, whether it's nutrition or whether it's early education, which is what Save the Children focuses on. Um, there's no there's no ramification, right? And he's going to remember their names if they spend a couple hundred thousand dollars? Yeah, well, he's going to know the organizations that are spending. If he's got to raise eight or nine million dollars to run for governor of X state, Arkansas, Tennessee, whatever state it is, if you get a thousand dollars, you're not going to know that person, really. If they, you know, spend two or three hundred thousand dollars in your race, that's going to raise the visibility of that issue. I mean, it's crass and it's gross, but that's the way the political system is set up today, Billy. I mean, you know that better than, than I do. Uh, so the point is, is that kids, poor kids, uh, don't make campaign contributions. Their parents don't. And they're, unfortunately, the parents don't often vote. So how are you going to have, you know, a seat at the table if you're not involved in the d- democratic process? And democracy is a combat sport, right? I mean, you've got to get, you're out I there. I can't f- argue with you. You're out there fighting for nutrition, getting school lunches. Um, Jeff's talking about healthy eating for kids. You know, he's raising money privately. you got to. When you combine that, you got to have some some say in the political process too. So that's what we're trying to be a small partner or a small uh, player on that stage. It's hard because there's not a lot of big money you want to invest in poor children in this country or babies dying internationally. So Jeff, what's your lens on this? You see politics through your own eyes, but also have this unique window through the work of your wife, Nora O'Donnell, CBS reporter. Do you see enough to make you hopeful and optimistic or enough to make you pessimistic? I'm old enough in my uh, life that uh, I've become a little, <laughs> little pessimistic in terms of you know, just kind of watching the same stories occur over and over again um, throughout the news cycle uh, throughout my lifetime. That's why it is refreshing to hang out with young kids and, and who are optimists and actually believe they can change the world. You know, I mean, I, I sort of felt that in my, in my teens and, and, and in my 20s. But it is like being in a boxing match, and I, I feel like I'm in the middle rounds, and, and uh, you've taken some hits. And you, you put efforts into, in, into things, and you, you see other people put so much effort into you know, very good causes, but the problem is those problems can you know, persist. And, uh, you know, it's, it, it, that, that's tough. I mean, you talk about poverty in Central America. You know, our, our, our restaurants are made up uh, with tons and tons of um, immigrants uh, from uh, the Latino communities. And, you know, they are fleeing in Central America uh, from some really tough situations. And they come here and they, they absolutely love it. But those problems continue to persist in, in those parts of the world. And you're seeing some of that need through, through the eyes of your employees firsthand, in effect. Absolutely. I mean, you know, these are first-generation Americans, uh, immigrants on visas. They work extremely hard, to, and they try to raise their kids uh, in the best way possible. But the place they want to raise them is in the United States of America. How do you decide what kind of causes 
to get involved uh, with. And I ask you that because you have famously instituted some, maybe as many as 800 performance measurement standards in your restaurants so that you measure the time that it takes for an appetizer to get to the, to the table and every other aspect of it. So you must have very high standards for how you decide to get involved in the community. I would love to see the sector that Mark and I work in use a little bit more of that type of measurement, but I'm just wondering how that affects your decisions to get involved in community. Yeah, for me, it's 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 our neighborhoods. It's you know, I I try to get involved in in groups uh, and I try to impact things as locally as possible. I mean, I, I'm I'm not a national player. I'm not even a regional player. Uh, I am a you know a restaurateur that has you know, a handful of restaurants all within 10, 15 miles of each other. Each of those restaurants are, are involved in an even smaller neighborhood. My original restaurant is right there in Upper Northwest D.C. We are across the street from a great elementary school called Horace Mann. You know, early on, I tried to get involved uh, there. I, I met with a science teacher there, and they were doing growing gardens. They wanted to start up the gardens, so we helped raise a little bit of money for them. I'd go into the class and hang out with 20 first graders and teach them how to make uh, pesto made out of right from their garden. You know, doing those things sort of on a really, really local level um, is where I feel like I can have the most impact. Uh, You know, I'm not going to change the world, um, but if I can, you know, have a positive impact on just a few kids and they can feel better about themselves or they can can gain the confidence that they need – uh, to go on and be successful and, and, and do whatever it is that they dream of doing, that would be a nice little legacy if I if I could have a few success stories like that. I mean, I, I guess, it, you know, I mean, I think that what he's saying uh, about, you know, changing the world is I guess I would disagree because I think if you, I mean, it's that old Margaret Mead line about, um, you know, if, and I'm going to butcher it, but it's a few committed people. Don't doubt the power of a few committed people to change the world. It's the only thing that ever has. So I think if he's in Horace Mann, if he's working in those neighborhoods uh, that where his terrific restaurants are located, which obviously he is, that sets a little you know ripple. Those ripples you know uh, are really strong, and it sets you know you hear about it and you're doing stuff on Capitol Hill and you're interacting with elected officials, and it's coming not from the genius that's in your brain. It's it's coming from the the real work that he's doing and others uh, are doing. So I I think that's powerful stuff. Well, I, I couldn't agree with you more, but how do you, I mean, you personally deal with that tension? You've got three kids, I guess, in school also. Yeah. You're an incredible father. Uh, yet at the same time, your 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 map is a, a global map. And I'm just wondering, how do you navigate where you spend your time, how you invest your emotional I guess I should energy? Have, uh, I should have gotten the degree in theology from Georgetown to try to figure <laughs> that balancing hack that because I don't know it. I mean, you know, I wrote the book called A Good Man. And after it was over, we were sitting around the dining room table and I said to my daughter, you know, the book's done. And she said to me, oh, I'm going to write a book about you too, Dad. And I'm like, wow, that's great. She's 12 at that point or 13. I said, what are you going to call it? And she said, an okay dad. <laughs> so, you know, the answer is I don't, I don't what was she lo- What was she lobbying for at that, at that she point? Actually a, didn't a, a new, she wanted a phone or something she didn't like that? She at that point. She was just telling the truth, which is that I'm struggling. You know, I'm, you know I, I think we all are struggling to figure out how much, uh, you know, the balancing act of being a good parent, a good spouse, have a relationship with God, uh, have a relationship with your friends and try to do something on either your community stage or your state stage. And I think that balancing act is hard to do. And that's why I look to people uh, like, you know, Francis, the Pope, or my father, or a couple of other folks to see how they did balance it. But you, you can't do it all. And okay. I think anybody who tells you they can do it all is not, not 
selling straight. I, I think it's it's impossible. You know, so many people say to me, "Who could be against feeding a hungry child?" And I say, "Well, of, of course, that's right. There aren't many people in theory against feeding a hungry child." If you ask the question in a slightly different way, though, and you say, "Who is for?" making the investments in a child's family so that the child won't face hunger in the first place, then the politics around that break down very quickly. Right, it's how you pay for it. Everyone's for feeding a child, but not everybody is for, when right. it really push comes to shove, to making those investments that will prevent a child from being hungry. But that's and, why we got to push the poli- political leadership, and we mean all hum- all Americans, not just those involved in you know political operations. but. Um, you know, it's like that line on peace. My father said, if, if more people demand peace than war, then peace will happen. If more people demand that we let kids, uh, that we feed them and that we educate them uh, and we won't put up with it anymore, then we'll have some systemic change. And in some cases, you, you, I mean, we're seeing progress. I mean, the number of deaths of, of babies under the age of five has been cut in half since 1990. It's a great story. Uh, we have a lot more work to do when 17,000 kids are dying every day and 800 moms are dying every day. And hundreds of kids, thousands of kids uh, around this country are not being fed and going hungry over the weekend. It's an outrage in the wealthiest country in the history of the world. I guess the last thing I would a- ask you before we wrap up is um, what can the average person do from the very personal to the political and the global? If somebody's listened to, to you, Chef Jeff, or to you, Mark Shriver, and said, I, I, I do want to make a difference for kids in this country— how would you recommend that they go about it? You know, I would try to find a you know great organization to sort of partner up with. Um, you know, obviously, I think it's the first and foremost, it's important to start right there in your own family and 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 be a great parent and um, you know be a good child to your to your parents. Try to be a leader. Try to be a leader, Mark. I, I think that there's everybody can do something. Uh, I mean, I have a college roommate who's the biggest wholesale distributor of fish in the Midwest, and he is now helping. Uh, a friend of mine distribute uh, food in Chicago. Another buddy of mine from from college works in, a, in the visa issue, and he's helping a community college in downtown Chicago, run by Loyola University, out there, uh, with kids that are having visa problems in their families, so that they can stay in school, that their family doesn't get deported, or that there aren't issues around uh, immigration uh, status within those families. So I think if anybody's listening and they think I, I'm, you know, I'm a lawyer, I don't, I can't give anything, or I'm a doctor, it's, you know, there's limited things I can do. There are organizations that need your help. I mean, clearly, Save the Children Action Network dot org. We're looking for voices to be involved in the political process, sending emails, um, making phone calls, going to town hall meetings anywhere in the country where we work. So we'd love to have help on that. But if that's not your gig, uh, there are other ways that you can get involved. Um, and I think anybody uh, can make a profound difference in an organization and, and ultimately in a kid or family's life. I've been talking about this with Jeff Tracy uh, from Chef Jeff's Restaurant and the author of a great book called Baby Love and Mark Shriver from Save the Children Action Network, uh, her new book on Pope Francis, which I would encourage people to really read. It's a lovely, lovely, and I think important book. Thank you both for being with us. Add passion and stir. Big chefs, big ideas is the podcast from Share Our Strength. The Share Our Strength community believes that everyone can share in the global fight against hunger and poverty, and that in these shared strengths lie sustainable solutions. Today, Share Our Strength focuses these strengths on making no kid hungry a reality in America. Add Passion and Stir is distributed by District Productive. Our senior producer is Kerry Thompson. Our executive producer is Peter Ogburn. 
Add Passion and Stir is the creation of Billy Shore, Debbie Shore, and Paul Woody Woodhull. I'm Billy Shore. You're listening to Add Passion and Stir from Share Our Strength.